with my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how are they to call on one whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear him without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? This section from Paul's letter to the church in Rome feels like it could have been dropped out of a 20th century evangelism handbook, or that it could have come from Billy Graham at a crusade. If you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For moderns like us living in a pluralistic society, this language of being saved is fraught. Especially for those of us in historically mainline churches like the Anglican Church, where in the last century atonement theories were thrown right out the window. And in some cases, for good reason. Salvation language and the impetus to evangelize, to go and get more people saved, has been caught up in imperialism, colonialism, coercion. The institutional church has used the threat of hell and damnation. And the theology of an angry God whose wrath is assuaged by Jesus' death on the cross in our place has been used as a means to control people. So it's no wonder that evangelism has become a four-letter word in many Anglican churches. This kind of saved talk justifiably makes us blush. So how do we make sense of this language when Paul used it in Romans? Because Paul uses it a lot. Salvation is really a big theme in Romans. And Romans is that letter of the New Testament that we lean on most heavily for our theology. Where's the good news here? Well, in response to these challenges that we've named, these challenges about salvation and evangelism, with links to colonialism, the feeling that we're shoving our faith down someone else's throat, Elaine Heath, theologian, professor, an ordained minister of the United Methodist Church has written a brilliant book called The Mystic Way of Evangelism, a contemplative vision for Christian outreach, and I'm indebted to her work for my thinking this morning. The mystics are those people who live on the fringes of the church, those people who have this sort of direct connection with God, this um, vision of God that is what we call contemplative, that uh, is unmediated by the sort of normal traditions and uh, rituals of the church. It's a very direct connection. They live on the fringes of the church, and they tend to be critical of the institution, challenging its tendencies to grab power. The mystics are the ones who can redeem this saved language for us and give us a vision for evangelism that is an outflow of love and not coercion. Drawing on the spiritual theologies of the medieval English mystic Julian of Norwich and the 20th century theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, Elaine Heath grounds salvation language in a God whose meaning is love. One of the reasons salvation talk is hard for us is because it begins with a problem that we are sinners who need to be saved. 
It's like we jump right over the first two chapters of the Bible. Do you remember how Genesis starts? God creates the world, creates humanity, and says it is what? It's good. It's good. It's very good. But we jump right over that to Genesis 3, and the fall, and Adam and Eve in the garden, and they eat the fruit of the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one thing God told them not to do. Don't eat from that tree. And they did it. And now all of us, all of their descendants, forever, are marked by original sin and guilt. And now instead of looking at us as God's good creation, God looks at us with anger. God looks at us uh, as those who uh, need to feel God's wrath and repent. But the mystics read this all very differently. Instead of reading God as the God who wants to punish, drawing on their experience and what they see in Jesus, they see a God who's not worried about original sin so much as what Julian of Norris calls an original wound. And instead of looking at us with anger, God looks at us with mercy and even pity. God sees us as injured and in need of healing. We get a sense from the mystics that God is doing something way bigger with salvation than just dealing with the fact that when I was 11, I sold some hockey cards from the barber shop. It's a shame that the word sin has gotten associated with things like that. You know, these little things that we've done wrong, when it means something bigger and much more interesting and important. Sin refers to the state of our world and our human nature, a nature that is marked by these original wounds that we receive through no fault of our own. Though out of our woundedness, we go on to hurt others. At the same time, we're a victim and perpetrator. How many of us have gone to therapy to sort out things from our childhood that are still coming back around in our adulthood? How many of us who are parents are worried about the things our children will say about us in therapy someday? This is all part of this original wound that we receive and that we pass on because we are a part of this nature that Paul calls sin. This mystic view understands that God looks at us with mercy and not with blame for these things. God sees us, God understands us, and God wants to heal what is broken in us, so that then we might break that cycle of woundedness that wounds, that we might be healed so that we can be agents of healing in the world. For this is salvation, to be drawn into the mission of God, which is to put an end to sin and death. It's a cosmic vision of salvation, the salvation of the whole world, not just about making things right between me and God. It is about healing my relationship with God, but it's also about healing the space between us, and about healing the space between us and the rest of creation. Salvation is individual, it's communal, and it's cosmic. And it's all grounded in a God whose meaning is love. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? And how are they to proclaim him unless they are sent? 
We are God's sent people, sent to make this love known in the world. So evangelism is not a church growth strategy. It's not a way to make more Anglicans to fill our committees and keep our pews warm and pay the bills. Evangelism isn't motivated by fear of hell or damnation. It isn't about reclaiming candor for Christ. Evangelism is God's call to us to bear witness that God sees us as we are and has promised that in the words of Julia of Norwich, all shall be well and all shall be well. All men are shall be well. The last word goes to Elaine Heath. When we believe in and experience love as God's meaning, love becomes our meaning, for we become like the God we worship. When love becomes our meaning, the ramifications for evangelism are immense. We're cleansed of legalism, judgmentalism, coercion, and exploitation. This is not a sentimental, soft love. It's a tungsten power that respects others, says no to injustice, and unflinchingly involves itself in the muck and mire of broken lives. We can love like this because God first loves us. As those who gaze day by day into the eyes of the one who sees us with pity and not with blame, we are changed. Our understanding of what it means to be the church has changed. The stone rolls away from the tomb of the church, and Christ strides out into the morning. Love is our meaning. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Thanks be to God.